Hello and welcome to Hi This, the Cause Chambers Westgarth Construction Podcast. My name is Hayley Grossberg and I am a graduate lawyer in the Brisbane Projects team. Today I'm joined by a partner, Matthew Muir, and associate Lachlan Tassel, both from the Brisbane Projects team, to discuss the High Court case of Mann and Patterson and the reasons why it will be an important decision for quantum merit in Australia. Matthew, before we get into a discussion on the case of Mann and Patterson, can you briefly explain what quantum merit is? Sure, Haley. Um, quantum merit is a Latin phrase which basically means the amount a person deserves um, or what the job is worth. Um, so it's uh, based on it's a concept that's based on the law of restitution, um, which flows from the law of uh, unjust enrichment, um, and um, those concepts and the source of, of um, quantum merit is probably what gives rise to most of the controversy which um, comes out of um, Mann and Patterson. And so in what situations does quantum merit arise? There's a number of situations where quantum merit arises. I'll, I'll mention three. Um, so uh, where work is done in, in expectation of a contract that doesn't arise, that's the classic quantum merit situation. So. There is no contract ultimately which governs the payment for the work that's performed. Um, where there's uh, also, you might have the situation where there's one work done outside of the contract. So there might be a particular form of work that's not covered by the contract and therefore there's no way of measuring or valuing the work to be done. Um, and um, then there's also the situation where you might have a contract that has an express agreement to pay a reasonable sum for work in question if there's no proper valuation mechanism then uh, the, the only valuation that can be undertaken is a quantum merit. How does the court assess a quantum merit claim? Now this is where the controversy arises. Um, ordinarily in, in, in unjust enrichment what you're trying to do is disgorge the um, unjust enrichment that the person has um, uh, obtained. Now in the situation of a, a construction contract um, you would think that the govern the contract would govern that. The contract would govern how uh, you assess the amount to be paid. But if there's no contract, how can you do that? But if you're in the situation where you do have a contract and the contract has been repudiated, and um, in that situation, the contractor can, if they are the innocent party, elect to accept the repudiation, terminate and sue for a quantum merit as opposed to their rights under the contract or damages under the contract. Um, the assessment of quantum merit in those situations uh, has, through a series of decisions which we'll talk about, now led to the situation where um, it will be valued based upon um, the uh, reasonable cost of the contractor of the work he had done and the money he has expended. Now, that comes from a case of Renard, which we'll discuss in a minute, and, and that's where the controversy really arises. Because what can arise is that... Um, in that situation where quantum merit is assessed on that basis, um, you will have a situation where the person could get paid more than the contract price for the work that they have performed. Um, and it's difficult to see why um, in that situation where a breach saves the contractor from further loss in performing the contract, that they should recover a greater sum than the contract price. So you mentioned um, a couple of cases that uh, discuss quantum merit um, and kind of reflect the current position of the law. Yeah. What did those cases say? 
Well, the main case is Renner Constructions and the Minister for Public Works. That's a 1992 decision in the New South Wales um, Court of Appeal. Um, it arose from a long-running dispute between the Minister of Public Works and uh, Renner Constructions. There was an arbitral award um, which found that the Minister for Public Works had repudiated the contract and determined that Reynard were entitled to recover a quantum merit for the sum much larger the contract would have allowed if the claim was assessed and um, pursuant to the schedule of rates which apply to that contract. It was a long-running dispute that went through um, to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal effectively affirmed the arbitrator's decision um, even though it was um, set aside at first instance. Um, so. Uh, that case has been the source of criticism all the way through, but this Court of Appeal decision, which has bound um, subsequent courts. Um, the one case I will mention, and we will come to another case in a minute, but one case I will mention before coming to the next major Court of Appeal decision, which considered this question, it was a case that I was involved in some years ago now, um, which was decided by Justice Finn in the Federal Court. It's a case of GC Marconi and BHPIT. Um, it's a very small judgment, if you want to have a read of it, it's only 471 pages long. Um, and one of the many issues that Justice Finn grappled with um, was the question of liability for quantum merit. In that particular case, the contract was a milestone contract. So there was five milestones that would be uh, payable over the course of um, the development of a basically a software project. Um, and th four of those milestone payments accrued before um, one party purported to terminate pursuant to repudiation of my client. Now, it's ultimately determined that there was no repudiation in the, and that GC Marconi's termination was in fact repudiatory, but um, the claim by um, GC Marconi uh, did include a claim for quantum merit for all of the costs for the whole of the project. Um, which were extraordinary and way beyond the contract price and way beyond the milestones. But the question there was, well, um, if you've got a contract that assesses the payment that you're to receive for each milestone, why on earth should you be able to disregard that completely and claim all of your costs? So um, Justice Finn had to deal with um, th that particular question. Ultimately, he didn't have to decide it because of the finding in relation to um, repudiation. But he did consider it and he did um, set out some of the, the key principles and why um, this is such a, a, a fraught area. Now, one of the cases that he does um, refer to is a decision of um, President Mason in the New South Wales Court of Appeal in 1999. Um, so after the decision in Reynard, and in that particular case, Mason said this, and I think it really sort of highlights the point uh, and the difficulty with a restitutionary remedy where there is a repudi repudiation. So he said, the starting point is a fundamental one in relation to restitutionary claims, especially claims for work done or goods supplied. No action can be brought for restitution while an inconsistent contractual promise subsists between the parties in relation to the subject matter of the claim. This is not a remnant of the now discarded implied contract theory of restitution. The proposition is not based on the inability to imply contract, but on the fact that the benefit provided by the plaintiff to the defendant was rendered in the performance of a valid legal duty. Restitution respects the sanctity of the transaction and the subsisting contractual regime chosen by the parties as the framework for settling disputes. This ensures that the law does not countenance two conflicting sets of legal obligations subsisting concurrently. As Justice Dean explained in the context of quantum merit and Pavey and Matthews, if there is a valid and enforceable agreement governing the claimant's right to payment, there is neither occasion nor legal justification for the law to superimpose or impute 
an obligation or promise to pay a reasonable remuneration. So that, I think, really highlights it, it highlights the problem um, and the, the problem that, that uh, Finn grappled with. He did note that um, he did note that um, it's long recognised that in cases of quantum merit can result in recovery that far exceeds what the innocent party would have derived from the contract, and that's that that is the law, unfortunately. And he did recognise that there was a lot of criticism there um, around this particular proposition. He did quote from Mason and Carter, um, Restitution Law in Australia, which is a very good book. And those authors there say there is little to be said in principle or policy for a rule that provides a clear incentive to manufacture or snatch at repudiation as a means of escaping a bad bargain. And what that's referring to there is um, where a, an innocent party and uh, the subject of repudiation uh, has, has a, a right to elect between claiming damages or quantum merit. If they're in a loss-making contract, i.e. if they're spending more money than they would be paid under the contract, um, they will elect to go for quantum merit because if you go for damages under the contract, then insofar as you claim expectation loss, i.e. what money you would have been paid and what profit you would have paid under the contract, there's nothing to claim. So it really does, um, as, as, a, as a matter of practicality, it, it does drive bad behaviour and snatching at repudiation, as uh, Mason and Carter uh, refer to. Um, the other area of criticism that's identified in, in, in the BHPIT case is um, uh, the, the proposition derived from Reynard of how you value the quantum merit itself. And in Reynard, as I said, what the court did there was that they assessed the quantum merit based upon the reasonable cost to the contractor of the work he had done and the money he has expended and that's the fair value of the fair remuneration so um that's looking at from from the effort that's been expended um under the contract but it doesn't look at the benefit that the person's derived and come back to where we started of this is um, a restitutionary remedy uh, under the law of unjust enrichment <coughs> which seeks to um disgorge the benefit that the person's derived um, and how you assess that based upon costs that the person's spent which may have been spent in such an extravagant way that has nothing to do with repudiation um, means that the, the party that um, that is the innocent party may be greatly benefited by their own inefficiencies and that was the case in, in uh, the GC Marconi BHPIT case um, because it was identified that the work performed uh, by GC Marconi um, was done in an inefficient and ineffective way and that was, they were the authors of their, their own uh, problems in that particular case. Um, so it's the lack of coherence between the principle and the execution of that principle that's led to a lot of controversy and in that particular case um, uh, Finn did say that was he not uh, constrained by authority he would have um, rejected the application of Reynard Constructions. Similarly, um, we come to Sopov and Kane, which is a 2009 decision of the Victorian um, Court of Appeal. Um, again, a long-running dispute, a domestic building dispute as well, where no doubt emotions were highly charged. It went to the Court of Appeal on the question of um, whether quantum merit was uh, an available remedy in the event of a repudiation of the contract. Again, the Court of Appeal feeling constrained by authority and saying that it was up to the High Court to change 
um, the, the principle which had been um, enunciated in Reynard, did identify that there was growing criticism of the, um, uh, of the principle um, and identified the, the criticism resting on uh, a number of propositions which the judgment identifies. The first being that when a contract is terminated in common law by acceptance of repudiation, uh, both parties are discharged from the further performance of the contract, but rights which have been unconditionally acquired prior to the termination are not divested or discharged. So in this situation, you've got a valid contract. Why should you have a restitutionary remedy? Um, and as they say in the next point, um, there's a valid and enforceable agreement governing the, the right to payment. Um, and they identify the, the case from uh, President Mason, where it said neither occasion nor legal justification for the law to superimpose or impute an obligation to promise or to pay a reasonable remuneration. Um, but notwithstanding those criticisms, um, as I said, the Court of Appeal felt um, constrained by authority and upheld um, the decision of um, Justice Warren, and, uh, well, Chief Justice Warren in first instance, which not only awarded a quantum merit, but also awarded quantum merit assessed based upon the costs incurred by the contractor themselves. Um, that was again uh, uh, subject to significant criticism um, by the appellant in that case, um, but the Court of Appeal determined that it was, um, there was no demonstrated error uh, because it was an available way of assessing the benefit. Fast forward another 10 years and we're seeing similar issues arise in the case of Mann and Patterson. Lachlan, are you able to tell us a little about what this case is about? Sure. So Mann and Patterson concerned a domestic building contract for, for the construction of two townhouses. Um, the contract price there was $970,000. Now, there were delays during the construction process and the owners um, tried to terminate the contract. The builder uh, turned around and said that that was a repudiation of the contract and elected itself to terminate the contract. The builder then went to the VCAT to try and recover its damages. Um, it claimed, firstly, damages under the contract and secondly, and in the alternatively, damages on a quantum merit. VCAT followed Sopov and Kane, and it held that the Manns had in fact repudiated the contract, thus entitling the builder to damages. The VCAT assessed those damages on the quantum merit, um, being the costs incurred by the builder, plus an allowance for profit and overheads. And the Manns have been unsuccessful in their appeals to the Victorian Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal. The High Court has now granted special leave to appeal, but what is the substance of the man's appeal before the High Court? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. If you look at the transcript from the special leave application, you can see that the High Court is clearly conscious that their previous refusal to grant special leave back in 1992 in the case of Renard um, was being treated effectively as if the High Court had reinforced the principles um, applied in the Court of Appeal. Um, so it's obviously a motivating factor of the High Court to, to actually consider this issue and make a decision. Um, having looked at the appellant's submissions, we can see that the Manns are arguing two main arguments um, for the quantum merit point. Their first position is that quantum merit should not be available as an alternative remedy to contract damages following termination for repudiation. They say that in circumstances where the relevant building works are governed by a contract, 
and that contract is not frustrated, avoided or unenforceable, the claim for payment for the works should be confined to a claim in contractual damages. In support of this proposition, the man say, a contract is not rendered void ab initio uh, upon termination for repudiation. This is known as the rescission fallacy. Um, upon termination for repudiation, both parties are, as Matt previously said, discharged from the further performance of the contract. But the contract, uh, sorry, the contract terms remain effective in relation to the rights accrued up until the date of termination. So therefore, as was said in the previous cases, there, there can be no legal justification to superimpose an obligation to pay this reasonable remuneration. There is a valid contract which provides the way in which works are to be assessed. A restitutionary remedy should really only be available when there is no genuine agreement or the agreement is frustrated, avoided or unenforceable. Finally, they say that uh, allowing quantum merit in these circumstances would undermine the party's contractual risk allocation. Now, the second position that the Manns um, argue is that if the High Court does find that quantum merit should be available um, upon termination for repudiation, the assessment should be subject to a contractual price ceiling. They say that the valuation of quantum merit uh, should reflect the bargain struck by the parties, that is, the contract price. The contract price reflects the party's allocation of risk. And in fact, a quantum merit claim um, can lead to an amount greater than what the contract would provide, and in those circumstances would actually unjustly enrich the builder. And so in light of what we've discussed today, and in particular the history of this case, Man and Patterson, why do you think it is so important? Well, as, as Matt previously showed, um, the, the cases show this current discord between the two available remedies um, following termination for repudiation. That is a claim in damages for breach of contract versus uh, damages assessed on the quantum merit. As can be seen from the previous decisions, both lead to different results for builders. And builders can, in certain circumstances, um, favour uh, the quantum merit claim because it leads to a much larger award. Now, the High Court here has a unique opportunity to address this discord and meet some of the judicial and academic criticism uh, directed to the previous decisions in Renard Constructions and Sopov and Kane. Ultimately, though, both parties have presented very solid arguments before the High Court, so it'll be very interesting to see how the High Court decides. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It isn't legal advice and you should always obtain specific legal advice for your particular circumstances.